Welcome to the Active Listening Podcast. I'm your host, Arianna, and I have the great pleasure of unearthing the stories and thoughts of others. Today, we get to hear from our first guest of Season 2, Arlie Hostile. Arlie seeks to understand the role human emotions play in our world from the lens of sociology. She wrote a deeply impacting book called Strangers in Their Own Land, which helped to bring insight and understanding to the stories of anger and mourning of those on the American right. Arlie desires to shed light on the fullness of human emotion within our politics and how that trickles into every area of life. In this episode, we talk about something we are all being greatly affected by right now, whether or not we live in the United States, and that's politics. Perhaps it will make you feel a little uncomfortable. That's okay. Let's sit with the discomfort and allow it to change us. Maybe it will provide greater insight or the words to say when you're in tough conversations with others. I hope so. My desire is to share perspectives and stories of others while encouraging you to think for yourself. May we see each other as complete humans, regardless of differences. And while we're at it, may we continue to love well. So please, join me for this conversation about politics, embracing the deep story. Well, welcome to the podcast, everybody. I'm happy to be your host, Ariana, and today I have the great pleasure of interviewing Arlie Hothchild. Welcome, Arlie. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. So for those who don't know who you are, you are a professor emerita at the University of Berkeley for sociology. You're a prolific author, a wife and mom, and you seek to understand the role human emotions play in our beliefs and politics and social life. So... Yeah, tell me a little bit about what life was like for you growing up. You were the daughter of a foreign service officer, correct? Yes, that's correct. So how did this impact your view of the world with the amount of traveling and moving around that you did with that? Well, I think it um, it made me uh, uh, feel displaced. Mm. Uh, and that, that was painful at the time but turned out to be a wonderful, I think, deepening experience. But at the age of uh, 12, I got plucked out of what felt to me like a normal childhood. And um, my father's uh, first post was uh, in Tel Aviv, Israel, where he represented the States. And um, Suddenly it was hot. Suddenly I was hmm. taller than everyone. I had a different religion. I I wore funny Oxford shoes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I went to a Scottish mission school, which itself was a cultural shock. Hmm. You know, yeah. Long, hot playground days and, and strict, strict. And I remember my mother, uh, after I came back from my first day at to beat the school in Jaffa. And um, she said, oh, well, how is school, dear? And I just wept. Mm. I, I just wordless. It was awful. Yeah. And then she said, well, don't worry. If after two weeks you don't uh, still uh, find it awful, we can send you back to grandma and grandpa. Oh, Boston. wow. And then I thought, oh, no, I'm stuck. <laughs> I yeah. didn't not see my parents for two years, so uh, I thought I've got to adjust to this. And 
that turned out to be wonderful. So mm. from feeling like a stranger, an oddball, displaced, uh, I, I learned what a big world it is, how social rules are not the ones you got born into. And their social rules are as dear to them as mm -hmm. ours are to us. And then after two years, uh, we moved back uh, for a while to Washington, D.C., and there, too, I didn't fit in. Mm. So I think the experience of being displaced, a lot of people in sociology in one way or another have gotten uh, uprooted, rerooted, have had, in a way, the migrant experience. Yeah. It's very good for us if we can be held while we go through it. Right. It's enlarging. So that was one one big influence. That's the sociology part of it. And I think the emotions part of it is that my my mother, I sort of had to keep a watch on her. Mm. She, uh, I never knew kind of what the expressions meant or would be. And so I think um, knowing and analyzing them became defensive for me. <laughs> kind huh. of a, a good thing to be able to predict. I don't mean that she was uh, wild or had a temper, but there was uh, something a little volatile there. Hmm. And my brother was a psychoanalyst. He came on and he focused on emotions. I learned a lot from him. So both he and I ended up interested in emotions. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, for that reason, perhaps I just put a sociology to it. Yeah, yeah, right. It's so interesting to me how so much of our upbringing can affect what we end up doing for our whole lives, really, and how it gives us a foundation for um, what we are passionate about oftentimes. Um, so then I guess you kind of explained my next question, because I was going to ask what got you interested in sociology and the study of human uh, emotions, but that kind of answer that. If you care to expand a bit more, then feel free, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, so on the topic of emotions, I feel like that's something that we are not super great at in this day and age or ever. <laughs> um, and especially, I feel like people at, in my age, we're, we're getting there, we're getting better. Um, but with social media and things like that being such a big thing, and you can't have that, that face to face conversation as well, especially right now with COVID. Um, it's a lot harder to be emotionally intelligent and emotionally honest and we often think of the person on the other side of our argument or what we believe as not being as emotionally capable as we are but then we aren't being aware of how we're being emotional in this situation either so how would you describe an emotionally healthy or an emotionally intelligent person well um yeah it's someone who um, is able to feel safe in in reaching out and mm. uh, in uh, sharing an experience. Yeah, and who feels safe also in hearing and acknowledging the reality that another person lives in. In other words, I think often we're afraid more of the time than we think we are. Yeah. The very thing we need, which right. is 
to communicate. And you speak of um, social media and its enormous and deep influence on uh, teenagers and mm -hmm. people in their 20s. Uh, I think that's right. You know, what's occurred to me as something that would be wonderful to do, which would be to have a program a little like Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, <laughs> where I'm going to cut down my media time to two hours a day, and that's it. I'm going to tell all my friends two hours a day. That's it. Don't don't email me. I won't be able to answer. Mm, kind of yeah. Set those terms, and then get together with a group of other people. A small group can be socially distanced, masked, but you meet them every day or every, you know, your yeah. sociability is face-to-face, -face yeah. and you're all trying to create a face-to-face -face life that um, feels real and good and where you can talk honestly. Mm -hmm. And so the sociability will get established offline. Yeah. And that'll be the default. So I think we need a better name for it than AA, but you get <laughs> the point of it that like call it uh the other life or right. something fancy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that would be the idea. Yeah. Which would then give you community that you need and the rapport and the accountability to be able to do other things and function and as a good human being in society, right? It'd be safe to say, well, I slipped and it was mm -hmm. 24 hours yesterday. Or yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 18 instead of the three I'm committed to because I do think it's an addiction. Oh, yeah, totally is. So we should treat it as an addiction and say, okay, what is an addiction? It's the substitution of drugs or alcohol or sex or, you know, there are a number of things you can get addicted to uh, that fills a void where gentle, human, real mm -hmm. um, connection should be. Yeah, that's a really good point and something that we need to be aware of so much more. And something that my husband and I have talked about a lot too is that um, disconnect between being able to give honest feedback or what is called the disapproving glare. Sometimes when someone may be saying something or doing something that may not jive with what you believe to be right and true doesn't come across on the same way on social media and so then you aren't able to have that that kind of honest back and forth kind of conversation in the same way um what do you feel about that situation and being able to to give that sort of disapproving glare do you think that is something that is helpful in having conversations and being honest about thoughts and feelings or yeah i think a disapproving glare is uh, a frightened fill-in for a full listening. Yeah. It means your alarm system has gone yeah. off. Yeah. And that that's all you have uh, is that alarm system. It's almost instead of thinking. It's almost instinctual, right? Yeah. It's what you're feeling is contempt, but then you're arming yourself. You're living in not just a social bubble, but a personal bubble where you're 
arming yourself with judgments and blame and shame. That's the armor. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people think they're doing wonderful political work to trudge around in this armor. Mm. But um, it's, uh, it's sad and it's, it's, a, it's a bad sign. I think when, when young people, especially young liberals uh, in college communities, are saying, no, we don't want to talk to the big bad people out there in middle America mm -hmm. for Trump voters. That's a sign of downward mobility. That's a sign that your your goodwill has been curled around into a knot and a mm. cocoon. And that judgment is taking the place of communication with the outside world. So it's troubling. It's a sign that your side is losing. Actually, mm. it's 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 yeah. completely paradoxical. Yeah. And what I think would be a good interim step if, is if people got into uh, the habit of saying, you know, as you say that, I'm actually finding a judgment is coming up mm -hmm. for me. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm wondering if we could talk about that, <laughs> what yeah. you said and how I'm responding. And uh, I'm not... I don't want to judge you as a, as a person. You as a mm. person and I as a person. We're, we're part of a whole of humanity. And we've got different childhoods. And uh, we've been led to our positions in different ways. So and, and share the struggle of creating the empathy bridge with that person. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the thing. Um, I have a funny story. A cousin of ours <laughs> um, said he wanted, he saw a great big Trump poster go up in his neighborhood. Someone who lived very close to him, he drove by that person's house all the time. So he dropped a note in the guy's mailbox saying, uh, I don't understand why you're um, voting for Donald Trump. Uh, I'd like to have a conversation with you. And the guy dropped a note back in his <laughs> mailbox. <laughs> I said, uh, no, uh, sounds like you have your mind made up. And then this cousin uh, dropped a note into the Trump supporters mailbox and said, um, I'm interested in listening. Hmm. And then, very quickly, the Trump supporter put a note in uh, <laughs> his box and said, I'm interested in listening, too. Hmm. Yeah. And that's as far as it went. It didn't yeah. go any further than that. But how interesting, how, how quickly you can open, open a channel. Mm -hmm. I think that's what this says. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would really love to talk about the book that you wrote, Strangers in Their Old Land, in talking about this more political side of human emotions here. Um, and I I loved it. It was, yeah, it was something for me that was a jumping off point, I think, and sort of changed the trajectory of my life, really, in showing me the humanness of politics and that politics are about a lot more than just these policies that seem very far removed. Yes, that's right. Yeah. 
Yeah. So the book that you wrote was called Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. And in writing that, you spent five years going back and forth between California and Louisiana. You immersed yourself in the lives of these people in order to understand why they made the choices that they did and how they were being affected by the choices that other people were making for them. So what inspired you to go on this journey and to write this book and to, yeah, immerse yourself in that way of life? Well, I sensed already in 2011 that tensions were mounting with uh, the rise of the Tea Party, as it was called then, and uh, there was a strong anti-government. You know, we don't want to have a strong government. We don't like what it's doing, and. Uh, uh, very hostile to Obama. And I thought, wow, these people are getting harder and harder to talk to. And then, honestly, uh, I was used to going to foreign places. Right. <laughs> it was my father's job. And I thought, well, it's time for a hardship post, as they yeah. call it in the Foreign Service, you know. Let me, maybe it's... I, I, in a way, my parents are gone, but I sort of assigned myself mm. a foreign post. Yeah. You could say I didn't consciously know I was doing it. Right. And woman said to my husband, you know, I wonder why I did that. Maybe that was why. <laughs> yeah. And it would feel like almost another country moved going from California to Louisiana. Very, very different ways of living. Yes, very. And, um, you know, what's interesting, I wasn't the only bridge builder, though. I mean, I would present myself, I would tell them what I was doing. I'm writing a book. I'm interested in getting to know you and writing honestly and fairly mm -hmm. about your experience and what's, what's led you to believe. Yeah. And uh, they... And I would also say, I'm worried about this divide. And they would say, yes, we're worried about that divide, too. Mm -hmm. So we had that in common. Just mm -hmm. <laughs> might look like a slender thread, but it was a lot, really. Okay, I'm going to try and bridge that divide. Is that okay with you? And they would say, yes, we'll, we'll try and help you do that. Yes. And then there would be a quick button. We think the problem is people like those around you in your community that look down on us and think of us as the flyover state and think we're prejudiced and um, sexist and homophobic. They have, the left has laid its judgments upon us and we're yeah. angry at that and we're humiliated. and you know, we, uh, at that. And so if you want to climb the humiliation bridge back over and find out who we really are, mm -hmm. uh, uh, talk about us in our wholeness, then, then yes, we want to, we want to show you who we are. Yeah. I went like that. 
Yeah, and you have a quote from the book that says, the right seeks release from liberal notions of what they should feel, happy for the gay newlywed, sad at the plight of the Syrian refugee, unresentful about paying taxes, and the left sees prejudice. And that was a big, whoa, yeah. We're trying to change the way that these people see life and without any grace for the human side of it. That's right. Yeah. And without seeing that people that um, you would dub as um, limited in their outlook would also see something limited in your outlook. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, for example, I followed a woman around uh, who had no mercy, in my view, for someone who didn't work. If they were able-bodied and they didn't work, yeah. she just said, let them starve. And um, she was a religious person, but she felt that strongly about one's duty, religious duty to work. And if you were able-bodied and you didn't work, you were um, not being devout and uh, no one should help you live. So that felt pretty hard shell to me. And then uh, following her around one time, um, we were in her car and she stopped at her church and we opened the hood and there were all kinds of plastic cups and plates. And um, I said, oh, what are these for? Well, it was a fundraiser for our boys in Afghanistan and uh, in Iraq. They're 17 years old. They're 18 years old. They're frightened. They've never been away. They don't know if they're going to get shot and killed. So we're uh, having a fundraiser to get them what are called one-touch pillows, pillows that they lie on, uh, and you're touching God if you touch the pillow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, this is, I thought, okay, I don't live in your, in your world. In my world, I just want to bring those boys home. But I actually, I'm not thinking as carefully as she was. Yeah. Experience being there. They were there. And that taught, gave me a little humble pie. Hey, why aren't they on my radar um, mm -hmm. more than they are? So I, um, I, I began to think about empathy map, you know, mm -hmm. that we all have a little map of who we should empathize with and who we should not empathize with. And that those people can be equally empathic, but they've just got different maps. Right. So um, anyway, climbing into this alternate world led me to think about the different patterns through which we, we empathize. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're cruel people, not at all, not at all. Yeah, which that leads me to my next question, and that is about the chapter in your book where you talk about the deep story. And that was probably the biggest moment of the book for me in understanding, okay, there's something much deeper going on here. So can you explain a little bit what the deep story is and how that impacts our views of the world? Yes. Uh, I began to think after uh, talking 
uh, to people for a very long time and a number of visits that um, politics um, is, is deeply emotional and you can, uh, you, you can access these emotions uh, and come to understand them as a deep story. What is a deep story? It's a, it's a, it's a, what feels true about an extremely salient situation which distills a basic situation you're in. You take facts out of the deep story. You take moral precepts out of the deep story. It's just that narrative, that story. And what this, I think we all have a deep story, but the deep story on the right is that like a dream, you, you can dream you're waiting in line uh, and the head of the line is the American dream. And you feel about yourself that you begrudge no one, but you deserve to move forward. You're hardworking, you're rule abiding. And then, first moment of the right wing deep story, you see uh, people cutting in line ahead of you, unfairly, as you see it. And who would they be? They would be blacks and women who, through federally mandated affirmative action, um, have finally been given access to jobs and opportunities that used to be reserved for whites and men. Mm -hmm. And then cutting in line also are environmentalists because it's felt, oh, the environmentalists worship animals, put animals ahead of people. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, there was that. So another moment of the right-wing deep story, there is Barack Obama waving to the line cutters. Oh, he's their president. He's doing for them. He's forgetting us. That's the second moment. The third, someone ahead of you in line, maybe someone who lives in a large city on the coast, highly educated, kind of turns around and says, you ignorant, ill-educated, mm. uh, uh, prejudiced, uh, sexist, racist, fat, uh, redneck. Yeah. And, and then that's, okay, that's it. People ahead of the line are, are, are condemning me, are uh, uh, criticizing me, are contemptuous of me. Uh, because I can't move ahead, but I can't move ahead because of them. Kind of that, that's the paradox. And in a final moment, there are chapters that in the last six months, we've that's a quick read through a variety of new chapters. Yeah, wing deep story. One of which is oh, we have the uh, uh, the deep story president um, now Donald Trump is making us uh, making the other side strangers in their land. We now have recovered our country. Uh, we're no longer strangers. He's led us out of the desert and he's doing for us. And then in other chapters of the right wing deep story, he's encountered enemies as 
he tries to do for us. He's telling us that he loves us, we love him. Uh, everything he's doing, he's doing for us. And then he's telling us, oh, I'm suffering. Mm-hmm. Don't you feel sorry for a person that's suffering? I'm suffering from these enemies. Uh, this would be the treasonous mainstream press. This yeah. would be uh, the deep state. This would be scientists. Mm-hmm. The, the, Center for Disease Control, all enemies, those who want to impeach me and, uh, and pass judgments on my making bargains with the president of the Ukraine, uh, enemy, enemy, enemy. And so I am suffering because of these enemies. Join me in hating them. Mm-hmm. So kind of an us-ing and theming is kind of the latter chapter of the right-wing deep story and now he's saying to us look i have suffered from covid this was a message from god but don't be afraid of covid that is do not be afraid of pandemic which has led to the death of 217,000 people mm-hmm. and uh, over a million around the world. Don't be afraid of it. Be brave. Don't, you know, this uh, is the latest chapter. We're in the middle of that chapter. Yeah. He has walked that back. So while he has asked for his followers' devotion as he suffers, he seems to be asking them to suffer. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of that. It's sad, I think. Yeah. And, uh, terribly worrying. Yeah. And you talked earlier about turning your alarm system off so that you can really hear somebody. In this situation, I find it really hard to turn off alarm systems and be able to really hear somebody. Um, how do you think that we can sit with people and cross the divide in something in like what the American politics are like right now. Well, I'll tell you, um, when, uh, and this is what I mean by take our alarm system off. Um, I'm not a, um, formally religious person. I don't believe in uh, the rapture, for example, I believe in compassion and empathy and extending it. Um, I would be with you on that one. With every breath. Um, So it's, uh, you might say, has a devotional quality uh, here, but I uh, feel that secular liberals cannot tune in to the frequency uh, uh, along which Trump is communicating to his base. He's not himself a religious person, I believe, but he's a brilliant at reading what projections, what feelings others are projecting onto him. Oh, you are our savior. That's being projected onto him. It's actually a book, you know, that God has sent us to Donald Trump to take us from the wilderness. So uh, he's responding back and there Mm -hmm. is a whole conversation and i believe 
that and this idea wouldn't have occurred to me if I hadn't taken my alarm system off and tried to tune in to that mm. frequency. Right, yeah. Right, which is not my frequency, but uh, that's what we get to do as sociologists and, and try and do to extend our own awareness. I think he is saying, I am suffered much as Jesus Christ suffered for your sins. I am taking all of this on for you. He's positioning himself in this way. I am suffering and um, believe in me. Mm -hmm. And that uh, people are saying, yes, he is our savior. He's suffering for us. And there's almost uh, a crucifixion. Look, I got sick. This yeah. is very interpretive. So I yeah. may be wrong, but... And now I've risen again, right? With resveratol. And I will give it to you all, right? I will save you. And this is wish fulfillment talk. But uh, if you're a true believer and you're hearing him on this register, it kind of has a logic of its own. Right. So that's um, what... Uh, I'm inviting us to be able to develop. Yeah. I have a little uh, sensitization to other people's messaging. Right. And in this case, perhaps the abuse of that messaging, mm. but you wouldn't see it if you didn't know <laughs> what he was trying to do and yeah. how he was coming in to get his face behind him. Yeah. And I think I I understand that because I did come from evangelical Christianity and I understand the stories behind that and and the beliefs that are these that they ground themselves on I totally understand that and you talk about being curious and and being open to the feelings not just the facts that the other side is is sharing and yeah that is something that I have to remind myself of too, is I, I understand because I've been there and I know what it's like. And I want to understand now even further why it is you do what you do. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And in a way, curiosity is not a cold thing. It's uh, curiosity and interest to me are very fundamental parts of love. Hmm. How can you yeah. love someone without really being interested in what's going on there, decoding it, understanding it? That's, to me, the completeness of love. If you really, really are interested, you know, that's uh, a gift uh, to the other side. And uh, it's wonderful to receive. Yeah. The recipient of it. So we need to extend that safely in politics. But first things would be a much more minimal goal, which is to just establish a, a table of civility mm -hmm. on which we can talk about disagreements. Yeah. Making disagreements safe. I think that's a first story. And this, I think, has to be done face to face, maybe. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, it's certainly better face-to-face yeah. -face where you're 
really acknowledging the other person's humanity. Mm-hmm. You have to, there they are. They're like yeah. you. And where you're, um, you hear the stories that feel real to them. Mm-hmm. I think these mores are hidden in stories. So what stories feel big to them? Uh, mm-hmm. And that's, that's the thing to get curious about. And I feel like it helps to be able to kind of not remove yourself, but to stand back and, and to see kind of both of you, both of you <laughs> objectively almost in the situation and see yourself and see them instead of only seeing them and how it is bugging you. <laughs> well, that's right. You know, I had a conversation with a man during one of these uh, living room conversations. This is a program that brings in a living room, uh, you know, six liberals, six conservatives, and uh, you break bread together. It's uh, started by a mediation lawyer named Joan Blades. And uh, I did one in our living room mm. with some of the people I wrote about, strangers who come to Berkeley to visit me. Yeah. And there was a man, a, a very right-wing man, and we were talking uh, about, the topic was um, cleaning up the environment. And uh, we went around the room once. Well, what kind of world do you want? Do you want? Everyone said, well, we want it clean. We love clean water, clean, clean air, clean soil. This is, so we all agreed on the goal. Okay, how do you get to the goal? Do you think it's enough just to be, uh, uh, leave it up to petrochemical companies, uh, you know, not to have uh, dump their emissions into clean waters you just think, is that enough? Well, so we talked about that. Mm-hmm. We can't have differences. And this conservative guy said to me, well, when you have environmental regulations, it means, uh, it reminds me of a, of a story that I hadn't happened to him, but happened to someone he knew, where uh, a man had a wetlands on his property and there had to be certain wetlands mitigations done. And that some environmentalists trooped onto his this man's land and had a gun and said, well, I'm going to see your wetlands and it's imperious and intimidating. But when he told that story, I could say to him, well, if that story was what I thought, the Environmental Protection Agency represented, and then EPA scientists who wetlands experts were like, well, if I was living with your story, yeah, well, I can see how I wouldn't like that. Yeah. (laughs) I'd be frightened and, and angry. So that's an example of how you kind of climb into their story, and then you say, but is that the story? Hmm. The full story. Give me the details. Yeah. And let me tell you another story that represents kind of how I think it usually works out uh, and what the rules are against doing what you say this EPA person did. So that's an example of how you uh, 
kind of climb into the other person's story. And there can be then a questioning of the terms of the story. But don't ignore the story. Yeah. Yeah. So then what would you say is your deep story? Oh, my. Um, you know, at the end of Strangers in Their Own Land, I talk about what I think of as the more progressive uh, deep story, which does not involve a long line where I'm stuck. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's no line at all. There's we're a circle. And it's kind of incorporative circle that if someone new comes in, you, you break holding hands with the person and incorporate them. And in the middle of this circle is a public square with public museums and libraries and uh, schools of the highest order. It's idealized, you know, this, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think, is progressive story. Yeah. And that you see in the center of it this uh, state-of-the-art children's science museum. Anybody can come. It's, it doesn't, you don't have to be rich. It's free or almost free. And uh, it's paid for by taxes, which people in the surrounding circle believe in the museum and they're happy to pay those taxes. And many people in the circle are actually the architects of this museum, right? They've built it or they're public sector workers. You know, they sweep the floors in that public museum. And then another moment of this progressive deep story, along comes a big excavator and uh, it uh, gouges out the concrete fundamental baseline of this museum, just digs out 20 feet of concrete, whirls around, goes out of the circle and uses it to build a private McMansion in a gated uh, community, privatization. That's, and people in the circle are furious. What do you mean? You're you're stealing from the public realm that's shared where there's diversity and uh, a kind of uh, culture of helping each other. You're subtracting not only the concrete, but the belief, the Mm -hmm. faith in, um, doing things, uh, focusing on contributions to the commons. So uh, that uh, privatization and just letting the rich get as rich as they can is anathema and a subtraction from something sacred. Now, are all public institutions a state of the art? No. Uh, you know, do people not resent it? No. But I'm speaking of a deep story that's, mm-hmm. I think, based in an, in an ideal that is treasured, that I treasure. Yeah, I feel that very deeply as well. And with the understanding that I'm increasingly coming to with, with politics and with seeing my community as people who are working towards a good life and how to support them and seeing politics as something that is incredibly nuanced and a labyrinth full of facts and emotions all mixed together. And none of us can do it by ourselves. We need everybody to work together to make this a beautiful life. Thank you so much for sharing that. And as we 
bring this to a close, what words of encouragement can you offer the listeners in regards to embracing our deep stories and embracing the stories of others? And what gives you hope for the future? Um, what gives me hope for the future actually are the young <laughs> and millennials. Hey, I'm talking to you. <laughs> Yay. And um, to uh, join what it really, I think, can build into a movement. There is something called the Bridge Alliance, which uh, encompasses some 80 different small uh, organizations where you talk across uh, the divide. But I think we need to get going with something larger and more publicly shared um, high school exchange programs, uh, for example. There is one called the High School Exchange Program where you get Southern kids to visit for three weeks. Hmm. They're opposite number in the North, and you get the yeah. North to go South and the Coast to go inland, inland to go coastal. I think um, that needs to be uh, massively upscaled, brought to scale. And maybe some kind of volunteer national program where people can work on projects together. Uh, because much of our political difference today turns out to be differences of region, as well as uh, differences uh, in uh, social class. Mm -hmm blue collar, white collar, and race. So those are the three things we need to develop. It would be great to get people on each side to do films. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I went, who, I was the stranger in another land, and I went and I saw this, you know? Yeah. And then to, um, thinking aloud here, but yeah. <laughs> then have each, uh, kind of uh, view the film that was made mm -hmm. it, so that people who were filmed get to see how they were seen. Mm, yeah. So there's so much that can be done, but I think the first thing is to realize that empathy isn't your enemy, it's your tool and it's the culture's protection. Um, but a lot of people think of, well, to empathize with that, that Trump supporter, that Biden supporter. No, it's giving in. Mm -hmm. It's weak. Empathy isn't weak. Empathy is strong. Empathy, and there's two kinds of it. But, you know, one is in a way leads to strategies for uh, building bridges across this divide and our it's strong and it's instead of the blame shame game uh which is very uh, a result of living in a, your own little bubble mm -hmm. and i think our greatest leaders if we look at nelson mandela for example was brilliant bridge builder he had made his negotiations with the architects of apartheid in Afrikaans. Mm -hmm. 
what a man, my gosh. You know, we all should learn from, from the best. And, um, and even in, if we look at today's ruptured politics, um, there are alliances you can't see. Uh, for example, George Soros got together with the Koch brothers. They both financed the opposite sides, but they both put money into reducing prison populations because they, for different reasons, believe mm-hmm. too many people were landing in prisons. And you take um, Alexandria Cortez uh, make an alliance with Ted Cruz. They're opposite sides of the spectrum. It can't get more opposite. Yeah. And yet they jointly uh, opposed uh, Congress people finishing their terms and kind of rolling over into lucrative lobbying positions, sign of corruption. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they jointly put together a bill against that. Well, good for them. <laughs> Let's have a lot of that. Yeah. It's, it's not enough, but it's a start. So yeah. I would like to see millennials kind of lead the pack in that kind of thinking. Yeah. And that would be an example of where empathy would be a huge show of strength when you can come together and make something stronger. Yeah. Thank you so much, Arlie, for sitting with me today. I really appreciate it. I hope others can also take what you have shared and be empathetic towards others and see people as full humans with the range of emotions and stories that come with that. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Marina. <laughs> Thank you. I was thrilled to be able to sit down with Arlie and talk with her about what it means to embrace the fullness of human emotions and to truly understand those who feel like a stranger in their own land. I love how she talked about listening to others on their frequency in order to get a more robust picture of why they might say or do certain things which may not make sense to us. She has so much wisdom and I could have chatted for so much longer. I hope you now have a few more tools at your disposal when talking about politics. I hope you paused what you were doing or tilted your head at what might have been said, but I'm so glad you stuck with it. Let's keep on sitting with the discomfort and allowing it to move us. If you'd like to hear more of what Arlie has to say on this topic, please check out her writings. You can visit the show notes to find a link to her book and articles. If you have any questions or comments on this episode, need further clarification on anything you've heard, or would like more information on how to support us, please don't hesitate to contact us at activelistening.life at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter. Reviews on iTunes are always welcome. And consider buying us a coffee. Go to our website for that. Thanks for listening and please join us for more uncomfortable conversations.